Good morning. So, uh, one of the things that I'd like to um, just underline right now, really following on from what Jason and Emma were sharing with us, is that this is a real opportunity. There are lots of signs of life here at Apex, new shoots of spiritual life emanating all throughout the community, new communities being formed, people being drawn to Jesus as their Savior and Lord, people who are beginning to experience God in fresh and deeper ways. And in a time like this, obviously, it's an opportunity for us to, as it were, experience that new life as God gives this fresh season in the life of our community. But it's a great opportunity to begin inviting others to join us. I'd really encourage you as we get towards Christmas that you're beginning to pray for the people that you long to know Jesus. You begin to pray for the people who in your family, in your friendship group, amongst your colleagues at work, those people who you've really longed to know Jesus, begin praying for them. Maybe give them a, maybe give them a friend's box. Maybe, maybe begin to invite them more into your life. But certainly invite them to join in the Christmas celebrations and in the Christmas worship here at Apex. I'd really encourage you to do that. It's something that I think is a great opportunity that sometimes we miss and sometimes we don't emphasize. So really be praying for those friends. Now, as you know, we've been looking at the way in which narrative works in the scriptures, and we've particularly been looking at the structure of stories in scripture that really undergird everything that we know about the Bible and the way in which God has revealed himself to us. Sometimes uh, people ask me, why don't you do more kind of like three-point sermons with three subheadings and everything kind of being principle-based? Well, we do do that from time to time. There's nothing wrong with that kind of preaching. But nobody ever lived a life that was just a series of principles connected together by experiences. The only way that we know how to live our life is to live the story of our life interconnected with the stories of other people. And from those stories, begin to draw the necessary truth, wisdom, and principles that we can then, as it were, highlight, underline, and emphasize for ourselves and for others. And so without the story, we don't really have the framework in which the wisdom can function. And so what we're doing right now is we're creating a framework in which we can understand the journey, the story, the process by which Jesus calls us into relationship with him. And as we understand that for ourselves, of course, learn that so that we might aid other people in that journey. This week, we're going to look at a traumatized hero. There are lots of people who have experienced trauma, lots of people in this congregation who know trauma in many different ways. Trauma, of course, is something that's become much more recognized 
much more universally understood with the pandemic and with the associated difficulties and challenges that came with it. Trauma has become something that really everybody is beginning to understand and, and really reflect on. And certainly for ministry and mission, we need to have a ministry that is informed by an understanding of trauma. And you as a believer, as you deal with your own trauma and engage with others, it's really important that we understand how God wants to help us with that. And so this story here of Ruth is really one of those stories that can help us most with these circumstances. Everybody's experienced trauma. Many of you have experienced trauma in very deep and significant ways. And so I'd encourage you to listen carefully. I'm going to do it in a different way this week. I'm going to read the story of Ruth in its entirety. I'm not going to read it from beginning to end without any comment, but I am going to read a chapter, and then I'm going to make some comments and give you the opportunity to reflect, and then we'll go on to the next chapter. I promise you it won't take all morning. It's a very, very short book. So let's, um, let's look at the book of Ruth, and um, we'll see how the Lord leads us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her, son, her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. 
But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So there's a lot of trauma here, isn't there? Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah have known terrible loss. They've known the loss that famine brings to communities, and they've known the personal loss of their spouses and their closest relatives dying. And it's interesting, isn't it, the way that the different characters in the story respond. When you encounter someone who has really experienced trauma at a deep level, you'll find that they will respond in different ways, but very often in ways that are quite predictable. Isolation is a very common experience and response for trauma. Orpah, perhaps, is an example of that. She she sees that perhaps the best way forward is for her to rely upon herself and her own resources and go and find some solution to the problems that she has individually. And then there are others who perhaps would maybe tend toward the codependent response and tend to cling to others as their support help, sucker, and the means by which they find the solutions to life. Here's the key. Whatever caused the trauma, however the trauma emerged in a person's life, There's only one place where the solution, the healing, the hope will be found. And that is in relationships. Orpah's going to go and find new relationships. Ruth is going to hang on to her previously established relationships. But no one who has experienced trauma will find healing by themselves. If you're one of those people who has a tendency towards isolation, listen carefully to what the Lord might be saying to you. Of course, the rawness, the tragedy, the pain that you have experienced would cause you to withdraw even from the merest touch of relationship because you feel 
so tender. But the only place that you'll find healing is in relationship with another. The other thing about, about trauma is that it tends to amplify the, the tendencies of our personalities. If we have a tendency towards particular proclivities, particular temptations, then trauma will tend to amplify those. Naomi is a fascinating person. She, of course, presents herself in some ways as the mentor to Ruth, although Ruth and Naomi really are equals in the story because Ruth helps Naomi as much as Naomi helps Ruth. But Ruth's tendency is quite different to Naomi. We'll see that in the next chapter. Naomi's tendency is to see the glass half empty. And her trauma amplifies that. Look at the way that she describes herself. Don't call me delighted, Naomi. Call me bitter, Mara. I have nothing left. There's no one in the world. And I've been completely decimated. So Naomi, clearly operating with a scarcity mentality, is focusing on what it is that she hasn't got and in doing that, misses the greatest gift that's right there next to her. I mean, I don't know whether Ruth is stood there thinking, well, what am I, chopped liver? I mean, here's Ruth. She's accompanied her all the way back to home. And Naomi, at the moment, can't see her. And so it is with all of us in trauma it's difficult for us to see the solution that God's given you, but the solution is always in relationship. Look around. There's someone that God is providing to stand in the gap and reveal his love and kindness to you. So we continue with the story. If you were good children, you'd say, yes, teacher. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of the harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and has worked steadily from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I've told the men not to touch you. 
And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have given me comfort and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, Stay with the workers until they finished harvesting all the grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So here's the thing about Ruth. The reason that she is the hero of the story is because her disposition and her attitude gives us an example that we can follow. Her example, her disposition is such that the people around her begin to take on her attitude to the world. They begin to take on her disposition, her orientation, her stance toward the world that seems so challenging and difficult. Ruth gets up, knowing how difficult it is, knowing how desperate Naomi feels, and she decides that she's going to have a positive attitude to step into the situation And by stepping into a situation with a positive attitude, give God the opportunity to do something that so far she's not seen him do. So this is a really important message in the story of Ruth. Naomi, of course, is closed down by her trauma. 
the natural tendency of her life is amplified and, and so she's seeing smaller and smaller opportunities. But Ruth, either because of her disposition or perhaps because of the way that God is working in her life, begins to look in a fresh direction. And by looking in a positive way, she begins to give God the opportunity to do something that's really important. I don't know what tomorrow is going to be like for you. If you feel closed down, if you feel as though tomorrow is going to be a mountain that you can't climb, then my encouragement to you is to take Ruth's lead. Find something that you can be positive about, even if it's not something within your faith, just something. And in that, begin to express a degree of gratitude and positivity. And in doing that, you'll begin to open the space that is necessary for God to do something. Now, the other thing that's really fascinating about this story is the way that Ruth is really an exemplar, an, an exemplary figure to not only Naomi, but to other people around her. Boaz speaks about a really important expression of God's character when he's talking to her. He uses the Hebrew word chesed. I know it sounds like you need a spittoon. But it's a really key word, maybe the most important word in the Old Testament. It's a word that is translated here in the text as kindness. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy, it's the same word. Chesed is a word that is so large, it can't be translated by a single word in English. But, but as it moves into the New Testament, and there's a different language used to express the love of God, the word is agape. It's the word that speaks about the sacrificial desire to meet another person and to express to them the kindness, generosity, love and grace of God. And here's the thing. Ruth has begun to get a reputation for kindness. And her kindness is a catalyst to other people's kindness. It's fascinating. We met uh, the Discovery Bible community last Sunday in my home. And then on Friday night, uh, the college students or those of college age disposition or whatever gathered at my place as well. And we looked at Ruth together. And it was really interesting to see how both groups were really struck by the kindness of Ruth being the catalyst to other people's kindness. We sometimes wonder why it is that the world is such an unkind place. But we don't ask ourselves whether we've been kind today. The kindness of God, it says in the New Testament, brings people to repentance. If it can turn people's lives around to the point where they can meet God, kindness may be the most powerful weapon that you can exercise in life. 
Now, there's this other uh, amazing concept, the kinsman redeemer, but we'll look at that after we read chapter 3. Let's continue. One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know that you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are my kinsman redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning. If he wants to redeem good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could recognize her. And he said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Now there's an ancient law in Israel, spoken about in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which speaks about what happens to people when they've fallen into debt, when they've fallen into privation, or even if they've fallen into slavery. What happens, of course, is that people get themselves into economic straits. They find themselves unable to pay back their debts, and as they do, they borrow more, and as they borrow more, they get themselves more indebted until eventually, as was the custom of the day, they sold themselves into slavery to pay the debt that may well be theirs to pay back. A terrible and perilous position for anyone to be put in. And so there was a law in Israel which, among all of the nations of the world, had the most 
remarkable justice-filled law that really any, any nation was able to see. The kinsman redeemer was a member of your wider extended family, member of your clan, who had the means by which to pay your debt and to reclaim your life and bring you back into, as it were, the land of the living. The kinsman redeemer was always the person who was the first relative within the wider group who was capable of meeting that need. Now, this idea of paying the debt of another person so that they could be set free from slavery, of course, is a theme that runs throughout Scripture and eventually emerges in the person of Jesus. Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, has joined the family of humanity, has become one of us, and in becoming one of us, has come with the resources to buy us back, to set us free from the slavery to sin and death and destruction. Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, is foreshadowed in the picture of Boaz, this man who wants to redeem the life of his younger relative, Ruth. And again, it's kindness that is the key. It's chesed love. He says, this kindness that you've shown me, Ruth, is greater than all of the other kindnesses. And what he means by that, of course, is that as an older man, he would be embarrassed in beginning to court a younger woman because it's outside of convention and makes the older person naturally feel somewhat uncomfortable. Ruth has shown that there's no real age gap as far as she's concerned. The real issue for her is that God wants to do something and he wants to do something in her, through her, with her and with the people that God connects her to. I think it's fascinating in a church like ours that you see connections between different age groups and so often the young are able to bless and benefit the older and the older are able to bless and benefit the younger and I really encourage this connection across the generations, not a generational gap that means that we're forever looking with critical eyes at the other generation, but looking with eyes of kindness that sees what God might do in us as a gift from the other. The story, of course, is moving towards its incredible conclusion. Let's carry on to chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there when the kinsman redeemer who, had met, who, had, who he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. 
I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of the people. If you will redeem it, so do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those in the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephathra and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar brought to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz, the farmer of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. God loves taking insignificant things and making them marvelous. God loves taking hidden people and doing amazing things through them. God loves taking a person from the margins, from the lost world represented by Moab, and bringing them to the very center so that their life becomes the representation 
of his grace and mercy and power. And God loves honoring the hidden parent, the hidden mentor, the hidden discipler. Parents, you raise your children, you want them to do better than you, and often they do. And maybe the kids get so captured by life that they don't really recognize or honor what it is that you've done. Disciples, you work hard to see someone come to the Lord and grow in the faith. Mentors, you do the same. Maybe you feel as though some days you're unseen and forgotten. The story of Esther that we looked at a couple of weeks ago finishes with Mordecai being the central character of the final act of that story. Naomi, who's been a bit of a curmudgeon, who's been a bit of a grump for quite a lot of the story, has been faithful to Ruth in sticking with her has given her the necessary mentoring to make the right steps at the right moment is the one who's honored in the end. Your life is not hidden from God. Whatever kindness you do, God remembers it. Whatever tears you've wept, the psalmist says he he keeps them in his bottle. He remembers you. And he honors you. So today it may be that you've heard this story of the traumatized hero and you've been able to identify. Some may feel they've heard the word not to fall into isolation. Others may have heard the word that they need to find healing in relationship. Others may be encouraged to have a positive perspective, at least in some portion of your life, to give God the opportunity to work. Whatever it is, be sure of this, that as you respond, the people around you will be seeking to be the representatives of God. Maybe today that the trauma of your life has become very clear to you again, has become very evident to you again. And so this is my encouragement to you. As you come to respond and to have others pray with you, recognizing that you can't do this alone, know that those who pray with you will not touch you, unless they ask you, is it okay? They won't pray out loud unless you say it's okay. And they won't offer even a word to you that is left with you without the agency to decide whether it's for you or not. 
If you want to come and pray and not have anyone trouble you, then the smaller rugs on either side of the periphery of the stage is the place for you. But if in the midst of your sense of need, your sense of loss, your, your recognition of trauma, you need someone to stand with you to represent your kinsman redeemer, then know that you can come and the prayer team are trained in the way that I've just said. Whichever way, my encouragement is to each one of you in-house or online to draw near to Jesus and simply say to him, Lord, extend the garment of your presence over me and let me know the touch of your kindness today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the beauty of this story. Thank you, Lord, for the compassion of your touch and the kindness of your disposition towards us. Thank you, Jesus, our kinsman, redeemer, that you knew we needed you. And you came to pay our debt. Lord, today, we pray for all who struggle, who suffer, whose hearts are broken or tender. We pray for those who are able to come to be prayed for and those who aren't. And we ask you, Lord, that our lives would be the representation of the kindness of heaven. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people say,